I know I've said it a bunch of times from this stage, but what a year it has been, right? What a year it has been. Hey, I've been telling people this, although it has been a difficult year, a heavy year, a challenging year, that doesn't mean it's been a bad year, right? There is still good in this year that God has done. There is still growth that has happened in this season, and God is still on the throne. So although we've gone through a tough season, I thank God often to be able to go through this season with a church like this. I'm glad we're not alone. We have a group of people, a community of people who gets to rally together in times like this, pray for one another, encourage one another, look out for one another, and I thank God that he walks with us through the storm, amen? And I know that as we, I wish that at midnight on New Year's, uh, New Year's Eve, I wish that all of this was over, right? And we could have a, I keep joking with people, we could have a big mask burning ceremony together and dance around it and it's not gonna happen. But I do believe that 2021 doesn't have to be a bad year. I believe for some of us in this room, if we really, if we really step into it, press into it, 2021 will be some of the best years you have ever lived. And that's what I'm praying for my life. I'm saying, I'm not praying, hear me when I'm praying too. I'm not praying God take the challenge away, take the pressure away, take the hardship. Well, sometimes I am. But I am saying, God, form me in this season. Make me who you want me to be in this season. And God, let me see the good in the middle of the storm so that I can, my faith can grow and I can learn to praise you even when it gets tough. And so I'm believing 2021 for a lot of us is going to be an amazing, amazing, amazing year. And today I'm going to talk about the most important decision that you and I can make for 2021. But before that, would you join me in a sacred act of talking and communicating with God, which we call prayer? Father, we know that you are holy. We know that you are faithful. We know that you are true. And before we step into this next year, Father, we take some time even this afternoon to reflect on this past year and to acknowledge the things that we may need to change for the next year. Father, before we dive into this sermon where we're gonna be talking about your divine word, we ask that you would speak to us. And would you raise your hands right now, whether you're at home watching online or you're here, if you're saying, God, I want you to speak to me. Give them permission. All throughout the Bible, we see raising of hands as a surrender. Would you raise your hands with me as a sign of surrender to God Almighty himself, saying, God, I surrender and I'm ready to listen. Speak to me. Go ahead and say it with your words. Speak to me. Speak to me. So, Father, we give you permission to speak into our life this morning. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Let us have per perseverance for the season. But speak to us what you want to speak into our heart. I pray specifically for those that don't know you this morning, that don't have that relationship, that today they would make that decision to know you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, look around to someone, take a seat, acknowledge them, give them a little eye contact, no kisses, no hugs, no any of that, 2022, 2022. As Christmas is now, 
in the rear view mirror, and we have New Year's coming up and a new year right in front of us, we know that this is the time where we start saying, what are the changes that we need to make, right? Right? What are the changes that we need to make to make the next year better than the last year? Some people say, I want to budget this year. This is the year I really get my finances under control. I'm really going to budget. I'm going to use the envelope system. I'm going to use this system. This is the year I pay off my debt. Some in here are saying, and I'm one of them, I'm saying, I want to read more books. I'm really good at accumulating books and stacking them up, but I want to get better at being consistent in reading books and not just starting books. Can I get an amen from anyone in here? Giving you some ideas, okay, for the new year. Let's be honest, COVID has made it difficult to work out. So one of my goals, and I'm sure many in this room's goal, is something with health, right? Eating more vegetables this year, right? The good thing is, praise the Lord for the fast at the beginning of the year, right? Um, I, by the way, I'm just going to throw this out there. I didn't think I was in that bad of shape until I took my shirt off one day in the house and my wife said, she was like, stop putting your stomach out. I was like, because we were taking like pre-fast photos, like 2021's a year, and I was like, no, she, she was like, I was like, take the photo, and, and now you guys are all looking, no, don't. And she's like, she's like, take the photo, and we, she took it, she's like, seriously, she's like, stop putting your stomach, I'm like, I'm, I'm not pregnant, like, I'm not putting my stomach out. So when this year comes right before us, we take all this time to look at challenges and think about, you know, the challenges and think about the changes that we want to make. And I believe, you know, there's a great chapter on this in the book, um, The Power of Habits by Charles Duhigg, where he talks about this idea of the changes and decisions that we make, not all of them are created equal. He says, some changes we make have very little effect or change only a small area of our life. And he says, other changes in our life create big ripple effects of changes in our life, almost like a domino. There's some changes you make that only hit one other domino over it. But there's other changes that you and I make in our life that hit multiple dominoes or multiple areas of our life and create the ultimate change that we want to experience in our life. Today, I want to talk to you about the most important change that you can make for 2020. This is the best decision that you can make for the new year, one that is not equal to any other change or decision that you can make in the next year. And a decision that if you make this choice will bring the greatest amount of change into your life more than any other change or decision that you can make. And to bring us there, I'm going to bring us to a passage, a very famous passage in John chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3. If you're online, it will be on the screen or take out your phone. John chapter 3. Father, as I preach this, would you give me the strength and the clarity of mind to communicate your gospel and your truth? I know that all of the work that you do is in your hands. I give you all the glory and the honor and the credit. Amen. John chapter 3, are you there? So Jesus has an encounter in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Many of you guys know that name. Nicodemus was a Pharisee a teacher of the law. In other words, he was, 
he had a lot of knowledge on the scriptures of God, the Old Testament. He would be an expert in that. And so under the cloak of night, Nicodemus comes and he meets Jesus and he has a conversation with Jesus. In this conversation, Jesus starts talking about some uh, profound truths, spiritual things. And he's explaining them to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus really is having these things go over his head. He doesn't understand them. It's similar. Have you ever had that happen? It's similar to the last time an HVAC guy came over to my house. And I had, him, I had a friend come over. This guy came over. I, I knew him through somebody. He came to the house. And my heat wasn't working. My air wasn't. He came over. And thanks for his soul. Thank you, Lord. But he was trying to explain the heater and the air conditioning. And I, it was like, yeah, he was just saying things. And you put this pipe here and this does this and this changes. And I'm thinking, what is he talking about? I'm like, yeah. He's like, so you put this and you move this piece. And if you see that pipe up there, this moves. And, and see if I just turn this a little bit. And I'm just thinking, I didn't go to school for this. What is he talking about? This is going way over my head. Now, let me say this. If I was in HVAC, and he came over and he was talking about HVAC things and it was going over my head, that's a problem. Jesus is talking about spiritual things to a man who should understand these spiritual things. And yet as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about things like being born again, Nicodemus doesn't understand it to the point where he says, how can this be in verse nine? And then Jesus responds to Nicodemus saying, you, you are a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Jesus is like, you're the HVAC guy and you don't understand what I'm talking about? Very truly, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Jesus says, you're not even getting the math and the subtraction. How can I talk to you about trigonometry? If you don't understand basic things about earth, how are you going to understand the more profound things about heaven? And then he says this in verse 13. Don't miss this. This is powerful. This is a deity claim right here. Jesus says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Let me read the NLT version, the New Living Translation, because I think it captures it in a little bit more simple language for us. Let me read it again. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man, Jesus, has come down from heaven. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, a guy who knows the scriptures, who spent his life trying to understand God, what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, I have the authority, I have the credentials to talk about heaven because I'm from heaven. I have the ability to talk about profound spiritual truths and deep things to you, and I have the credentials. I have the authority to speak on things you may have never even heard about before because I am from heaven. 
My home is in heaven. I am the architect of heaven. See, I am the creator of these things, and I'm here standing before you as one who is the architect of heaven. My home is in heaven, and I've come down from heaven to talk with you. Jesus is taking claims. Every time I read a book, I want to know what are the, what are the credentials of the author. Why should I listen to what you have to say about a subject? What have you studied? What have you done that make you somebody that's worth listening to? And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm worth listening to because I'm from heaven. And ultimately he's saying, anyone who can go to heaven and return, ultimately saying is, I'm God. Say, Nicodemus, you've been a religious person who's, who's known and studied truth your entire life, but you've never met anybody like me. In other words, the reason that Jesus can give heavenly explanations is that he has come down from heaven and no man has gone into heaven that, that he can do what I do. And then Jesus says this in verse 14. He says, I have the credentials. He says, I have the authority to speak about the highest realm of spiritual things. And then he says this in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Verse 15, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Whenever we're talking to somebody about something and it's going over their head, we always take something that they know and we try to explain the unknown, right? The unknown. We take analogies, right? If someone has, you know, never experienced snow in their entire life, you try to take a concept that they know. Well, it's kind of like sand, but it's kind of like wet, cold sand. I'm trying to explain clouds. Well, clouds, it's like kind of like cotton balls kind of put together or pillows. And we take a concept that people know and we try to help somebody explain something that they're, that, that's unknown to them. That's what Jesus is doing here with Nicodemus. He points back to a story in the Old Testament. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, when he says that, he's speaking to Nicodemus in language that Nicodemus would understand. He's pointing to a book in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. Now, don't raise your hand right now if Numbers is your favorite book in the Bible. And I'm not going to have somebody come up. Actually, I will. No, I'm just kidding. And point out where Numbers is because we'd be like, uh, is it New Testament, Old Testament, somewhere in here? It's not a book that we read often, yet there's a powerful, profound truth that Jesus is pointing out to Nicodemus. So read it with me in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. This is the story that Jesus is pointing to to help Nicodemus understand the purpose of Jesus coming to earth. Listen. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. They, talking about the Israelites, traveled from Mount Hor, H-O-R, okay? Just want to clarify. Israelites traveled from Mount Hor along the, the route to the, to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the Israelites grew impatient on their way. So they're traveling. They're traveling from Egypt. They're freed from slavery, right, by God. And they start complaining as they're traveling along their path. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have, we been, why have 
You brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent, this is God's response. Pretty wild that Jesus would reference this. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many of the Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned and we spoke against the Lord and against you, Moses. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8, don't miss this. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Why would Jesus, in trying to explain deeper truths about salvation, about his purpose on earth, point to this obscure passage all the way back in numbers that most of us probably in this room have never read. He's pointing to a story to help Nicodemus understand the greater truth of why Jesus is in front of him at that very moment, what Jesus's purpose is. And listen to this. In the story, the key saving moment in the story is all the people had to do in order to be saved from God's wrath is to look at the provision hanging on the pole. Can you think of any other place in the Bible where someone was hung on something high? Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and saying, listen, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness to heal the people from the poison, Jesus is lifted up high on the cross and died on the cross to heal us from the poison of sin. See, this is a story. See, God is, is, uh, is, is just amazing to understand the, the complexity that's in the word of God and how stories of old really are pictures of the work that Jesus is going to do on the cross hundreds of years later. See, hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus is ever born, before he ever comes to earth in the form of a baby born of a virgin, he is predicted and prophesied over and over and over. They're talking about this amazing moment about where Jesus is going to be born, about how it's going to happen, about how he'll have to go to Egypt. There's these predictions that are made hundreds of years before he's born because Jesus is that big moment. It's almost like a trailer to a big movie that's coming out. Jesus is like, I want you to get a sneak peek of what I'm going to do through sending my son to the earth. And the people of Israel, God because of their complaining, he brought these snakes. These snakes were biting people. And Moses set up this pole with a bronze snake on top so that when you were bitten from a snake, you could get your way there, look at the bronze snake, and you would be healed. You would be saved from the wrath of God. Do you understand that this is a picture of what Jesus has done on the cross? That we are poisoned by sin? All of us should experience the wrath of God for the actions and the sin that we've done. We've fallen short 
of the glory of God. We've crossed the line that God said don't cross. We weren't able to hit the mark that God called us to, to touch and to hit. We were incapable of being able to do it. And yet God sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life on earth, to be lifted up on a cross with nails in his hand, and Jesus died died on the cross on our behalf so that we can be just like the people of Israel in the wilderness so that they could be healed and so that we could be healed from our sin so that we who were dead in our sins could be made alive in Christ, that we that were far from God could be brought close to God, the, we that were at war with God could be brought to peace with God. Do you understand that when we look to what Jesus has done on the cross, we are able to be healed? Healed. Free. Found. And Jesus is pointing to Nicodemus. He's saying, listen, understand that we need to look to Jesus for salvation, just like the Israelites looked to be saved from the poison that was within them to the serpent that was on the pole. And now I'm going to read the most famous verse that Jesus follows up with, the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. Many of you know this verse, but don't allow your familiarity with this verse to allow you to glaze over the profound truth that is in it. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish, but have eternal life praise Jesus praise Jesus let me pop a thought into your head right now Jesus God could have never he could have withheld sending Jesus to the cross and he would have still been just and good he didn't have to send Jesus his son to die on the cross on our behalf and pay the price for what the Bible would call us enemies of God. He didn't have to do that. But yet he chose to send his son to be born of a virgin, to live the life of a human, all God and all man, to be rejected by people, to be beaten, whipped, crucified on a cross next to two criminals, he allowed all of that to happen. Why? Why would a God who's all-powerful, who's all-sovereign, who is completely just, why would God allow that to happen? Because he so loved you. He so loved the world that he was willing to give it all. I always say when you will always give to the, to the degree that you love. If you love to a great degree, you'll give to a great degree. If you love to a great degree, you'll sacrifice to a great degree. You'll give something that costs you, that hurts you. Jesus gave the ultimate sacrifice. God gave the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus coming to earth and dying on the cross. And let me just be super clear. Once again, he died for us. God sent Jesus to the earth to die for you, 
for me. We weren't necessarily looking for God. We were living in our own life. And yet God sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. It was costly. And Romans 8 says God did not even spare his own son. And let me say a little bit here because sometimes we get confused. And a lot of, even the, ver the version I've memorized, which is probably in the, old, in the NIV, old NIV, is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I just want to, I want to teach a little bit on that for a moment and bring some clarification to that when we talk about the word begotten. Because oftentimes we think this word begotten means that Jesus was procreated by God. Let me just say, that idea is not right. It's not true. Jesus was never created. Okay? Jesus is from the beginning. He's created all. He's not a created being. He was with God the Father in the beginning of everything creating right alongside. It says nothing has been created that has been created. Nothing that's been created has been created outside or apart from Jesus. So I just want to put your mind at ease because I've had people come to my door before, Jehovah Witnesses. They didn't really know whose door they were at. They, they didn't know. But they came to the door and they, you know, were agreeing on a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah, you believe, yeah, I believe Jesus is the way. You believe that, oh, yeah, I believe that, you believe. And then it says, but here's the key. Who is Jesus? Well, yeah, Jesus is just, he's, he's an angel. He's like, he's like Michael or Gabriel. And he said, absolutely no. That's where we disagree, and that's central to our faith. We do not believe that Jesus was a created being like the angels or like man. We believe that Jesus is fully and completely God. And so anybody that ever says anything less than that is calling Jesus something lower than God, which means he's not God, which means you're not following the Jesus of the Bible because Jesus is not, is not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just somebody you quote. The, Jesus is God. And, and we're not giving our lives to just some Israel, you know, guy from some Jewish guy that lived 2,000 years ago that taught some great thoughts that we all kind of circle around. We're giving our life to Jesus, who was God, who came down in flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and then was resurrected by the power of God after three days. The Jesus we worship came down in flesh but was fully God at the same time. And this word begotten, if we're getting a little theological for a minute, this word begotten is monogenes. That's the word, monogenes in the Greek, right? Because our Bible is translated from the Greek in the New Testament to the English. Monogenes, this word for begotten means not from, but one of a kind or unique. And really it's best understood in the context of relationship. In other words, what is said when it says Jesus is the Son of God, it really means Jesus is the one of a, he has a one-of-a-kind relationship with God the Father. It's very important that we understand this, that it's not in our mind an idea that Jesus is, is procreated by God because then it means he's a created being and it means that he's less than the Father when the Bible says he's the exact representation of the Father. And we see, in a, I'm not going to go into that. We see another verse in Genesis 22, if we're getting technical. We see the same exact word in the Greek used with Abraham when Abraham is talking about Isaac. And he's talking about Isaac, and he says, Isaac, my one-of-a-kind son. He had a special relationship with his son. It wasn't talking about Isaac being procreated or that Isaac was just his only son because Abraham had two sons at that point. Are you tracking with me? You guys are saying, kind of, I don't know. 
Let me say it this way. Don Stewart, pastor and theologian, said it this way. Jesus is not a literal offspring, for he has existed for all eternity. The Bible often uses the word son in the sense of possessing the nature of. Jesus is the son of God in the sense that he's possessing the very nature of God. The title son does not in any way suggest that the son is inferior to the father. So when Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, what Jesus is saying is, listen, there's only two options. Either you believe in Jesus and you experience eternal life through Jesus, or you deny Jesus and the work that he's done on the cross and the God who has sent him, and you perish. Only two options. Verse 17. For God did not send his... Man, this is so powerful. I was talking to my wife yesterday, and I was saying... You know John 3, 16. She's like, oh, yeah, for God so loved the world, you know. Every, every Christian, when they say John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, it's like the fa our favorite verse. We're like, yeah, we know, we know one. <laughs> Let me give you one more. Jesus wept. That's the shortest verse in the Bible. Now you can say two. But many of us don't know John 3, 17. And John 3, 17 is so powerful, brings so much truth to the verse before, and it shows the intent of God and really a lot of his reasoning behind it. And so I was kind of messing with her. I was like, hey, can you say G John 3, 17? And she was saying like two words and then two words. And by that time, I gave her the whole thing. So let me give you John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus was not sent into the world to condemn the world. Jesus was not sent into the world at that time to judge the world, which is so interesting because when you see Jesus encountering demons, one of the demons that Jesus encounters, the demon's so afraid, he says, you are the son of God. Why have you come to torment or judge us before our time? Think about that. Even the demons understand that at one point in all creation's life, we will stand before the throne of the Almighty and be judged upon the way that we live. Why did you come before your time? There will be a time when God Almighty judges every human that's lived on the face of this earth. But Jesus did not come at this time to condemn the world. Listen to verse 17 as it continues. But to save the world. Jesus didn't come. He could have come. Can I say that? Jesus could have come at that time and said, I'm going to condemn the world. Jesus could have come just like he did in the time of Noah, and the, it said the world grieved him what was happening and wipe out the face of the earth instead of one, and he would have still been a just and good God. Absolutely. 100%, the angels would still adore him and worship him and scream, holy, holy, holy. Yet he did it. He, say, he said, out of my love for my creation." I am willing to send my own son at this time. Even though he could judge and condemn the world, I won't send him yet to do that. That will be at a later time. But I will now send my son to save the world through the sacrifice that he'll make on the cross. 
Verse 18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Can I speak to you as a believer for a moment? If you're a Christian and you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, and he's, he's who you're trusting for your salvation, your righteousness before God, and, and you still wrestle with sin, let me first say this, welcome to the club. Yes. Talk to my wife. <laughs> Paul still wrestled with sin. Paul in Romans says, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And I do the things, he's like, I'm wrestling with doing these things I don't want to do. Why? That's Paul. So if Paul wrestles with it, you better believe you're going to wrestle with it. Paul wrestled with sin. Now, that doesn't mean you're just like, okay, I'll just allow it in my life and do whatever. No, 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 no. Romans also says, should we, should we sin because grace abounds? Surely not. In other words, should we keep sinning because we know God's going to forgive us? The Bible says, no, that's the wrong heart. But let me say this to you. If you as a Christian are wrestling with sin and you feel so condemned, you feel so accused, you feel so just, just, you just have all this weight and I'm, I, God couldn't accept me. He couldn't love me. He does, look what I did. Can I tell you, let me read the verse one more time. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Don't live under the lies and the accusation of the enemy into your life. Don't allow him real estate in your mind to make you believe that you aren't worthy of being a child of God. Hey, welcome to the club. None of us are worthy. That's where we're trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus. So when the enemy tries to accuse you and me because of the sin that we do, we say, hey, listen, I'm not pointing to my track record. I'm pointing to his. So if you have an issue with me, you have an issue with him. The enemy will try to manipulate you through making you believe that you're lesser, that God couldn't accept you, that you're not forgiven and washed of your sin now because you just sinned last night. Can I tell you, Jesus forgives people of the past, the present, and the future. You are totally washed and cleansed before the almighty king of all kings. So stop accusing yourself because he isn't. Stop condemning yourself because he's not condemning you. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God, God's one and only son. I'm, I'm wrapping up here, but don't miss these thoughts because this thought really, this verse really blew my mind, verse 18 here, because Jesus is changing from perishing and ever life language to language of a judge or legal language. The language of judgment, a judge says the words condemn and condemned. That's the language of a judge. That's the legal language. Jesus moves away from the language of life and death and he moves, away, he moves to this language of guilty and not guilty. But it's interesting that in verse 18 it says, but whoever does not believe in Jesus, stands condemned, keyword, already. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus at this time is he's saying, listen, the problem of sin 
existed far before I came to the earth in the, in the form of a human baby. You were condemned before I came to the earth. And if I didn't come to the earth, you were still condemned. Think about what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that he brought the problem. Jesus is saying that the problem of sin is already here. Jesus didn't come to the world to judge and to condemn. We were already condemned. Ephesians chapter 2 says we were dead in our sin and trespasses. What does that mean? Well, you look all the way back in Genesis, and when Eve eats the fruit and God curses man and woman, it says that you will, if you eat that fruit, you surely will die. Two types of death were, were brought into humanity when Eve and Adam ate the fruit. The first one is physical. We were never meant to die. We were gonna live eternally in the garden, but when Adam and Eve sinned, we brought in a physical death. That's why you and me experience this horrible, horrible, horrible thing of having to experience the death of people we love. But the second type of death that it brought into our world was a spiritual death. This is one that you don't go to a funeral for. When you go to a funeral, you see somebody's body in a casket, but there's also an essence that their body is not fully who they were, right? They also had a spirit, a part of them that connects with God. And ever since Adam and Eve sinned, all of humanity has been born with a dead spirit. Think about that. We've been unable to connect with the God who created us and who created us to walk with him in the garden. Let me be super clear. If you have not given your life over to Jesus, you're alive physically, body, your mind, your personality, functioning, all good, but you can be dead spiritually. Completely unable to understand truth, spiritual truth. Why? Because that comes from God making you alive through his Holy Spirit. Do you understand that the Ephesians talks about part of the reason that the world can't accept God is because, or Jesus and the sacrifice he's made is because people's hearts are hardened because of sin and it creates ignorance? You ever talk with somebody, you're like, I just don't, like, how do you think all of this came from nothing? And they're like, I just, I do. It's like that's blank ignorance that comes from the hardening of the heart because they are dead spiritually and cannot connect and relate with God. If you are a Christian sitting in this room and you've given your life over to Jesus, it's not poetic language when the Bible says you were dead and now you're alive. That's a reality for you. When the Bible talks about you were dead, you were dead. Not like on life support, you were gone. And if you were to die in that moment, or if you were to die in a moment now and you don't know Jesus, the scripture is clear. Jesus is blatant about it. There is a perishing, a separation, a departing from God that you will experience. And, and you say, well, God's so unjust. Why would he do that? That seems so mean. Scripture says God desires that nobody would go to hell. I think John Piper, theologian John Piper says it the best. He says it this way. Unbelief is our fault and belief is God's gift. Which means that if we do not come to Christ but instead perish, we magnify God's justice. And if we come to, and if we come to Christ and gain eternal life, we magnify God's grace. God's attributes are on display for the whole world to see. If we surrender our life to him and give it over to him, 
and he wipes our sins clean because we put our trust and our faith on Jesus as we look to the sacrifice that he made on the cross, God's grace is on display for all the whole world to see. And if we never come to God and we lived a sinful life and we, 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 we never allowed Jesus to wipe our sins and we just, all these things that were wrong that every single one of us in the room has done and we die, God is just, fully, completely, perfectly just to send us to hell. Why? Because he has provided a way to save us. Through Jesus, his son, he provided an escape, an out, an opening through the work that Jesus has done on the cross. I keep getting red light tickets. I moved, and I'm in this new area, and I don't know the streets. I know my old streets, where the cops are, and I don't know the new, and I have gotten multiple tickets in the mail, multiple, and I know it's here, and it's like, here, you got mail, and like, it's bright red. I said, ah. And this last one that I got, I was convinced, I said, Carolina, no way. No way did I get another ticket. I know that I stopped, I slowed down, I did this all. I know that I was driving safe, seatbelts on, praising Jesus. I know. <laughs> Convinced. And yet the state has this really dumb software that allows you to type in your ticket number and your uh, uh, license plate and it gives you real-time, accurate video of what you did on camera. And I told Carolina, I said, I was convinced. I said, no way. I stopped. I've been adamant. I've, like, stopped early, prayed a prayer, moved on. Like, I am good. And she's like, I'll just watch the video. I turned the video on. It looked like I was drag racing, like, drifting, like. And I watched it, and I said, I was convinced, convinced. And I watch and I slow down and I see that there was a cop that went through the thing and he was, it was an emergency run and I slow down a little bit and then I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna go to the crime scene with him or something in my mind. And I just sped off after him and I was convinced that I wasn't guilty. I think that if we were to watch a recording, a documentary, a video our life story as we stand before the judge and the king of all kings and the lord of all lords once our life here on earth is gone i think a lot of us before we stood in him would be convinced that we're good people convinced that we don't deserve hell convinced i did this and that and this and yet when we look through the record of our life and what we've done and what we said and what we've hurt people I think a lot of us, by the time we were done watching the hours and hours of the recap of our life and the sins of what we've done, I think a lot of us would sit there and say, I'm convinced I don't deserve heaven. But thanks be to God that we don't earn our salvation, but it's given. And I have one final verse. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. 
not by works so that no one can boast. Not a single person in this room, if you are a follower of Jesus, can say, I earned my salvation. I was good enough. I, I gave enough money. I prayed enough. I read my Bible. I was at the food pitch. Not There's no one in this room that can point to the work that you did in your life, the good deeds, and say, I earned my salvation. Because if you did, if you could do enough good work, if you could sell your house and give it to homeless people, if you could do all the good things and give every single piece of what you have to, away to everybody else and just, just pray, you're just like a monk. And if you were to do all of that, all of that, it's still not enough. And if you did all of that, you could say, when you showed up at heaven, I earned it. What Jesus is saying here is none of you with a thousand lifetimes could ever earn the gift of salvation. I offer it to you who don't deserve it freely. All you have to do is look to the cross and what Jesus has done and put your trust and faith in what he's already done, not what you can do. Amen.